Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is the final lecture in our adult reconstruction series. This lecture will cover key testable information regarding revision total knee arthroplasty, rehabilitation, and complications associated with total knee arthroplasty. Before we start with revision total knee arthroplasty, let's talk about a specifically challenging primary total knee, and that is performing a total knee arthroplasty on a patient with patella baja. So first, what is patella baja? Patella baja is a congenital or acquired condition in which the patella rests in an abnormally inferior position. So how do we know it's inferior? We can gauge the location based upon lateral radiographs. On a lateral radiograph with the knee flexed 30 degrees, the incel salvati ratio can be calculated. It is calculated by the length of the patella tendon divided by the patella bone length. Normal values should be between 0.8 and 1.2. Less than 0.8 indicates patella baja. Now, what causes patella baja and why does this condition matter? Patella baja is the most common complication seen after proximal tibial osteotomy, including both lateral closing wedge and medial opening wedge techniques. It is typically thought to be caused by scarring of the patella tendon postoperatively. It may also be found following tibial tubercle osteotomies and transfers, as well as inadvertent joint line elevation with total knee arthroplasty. Patella baja typically presents with stiffness and anterior knee pain. The patient will have limited flexion secondary to mechanical impingement from the inferiorly positioned patella. In the setting of total knee arthroplasty, specific techniques must be used to successfully perform the procedure in a patient with patella baja. What arthrotomy technique can aid in the exposure of the joint that we discussed in a previous lecture? A tibial tubercle osteotomy. The tibial tubercle osteotomy may be needed to allow for adequate exposure and visualization of the joint surface. The simplest solution for addressing patella baja involves placing the patellar component on the superior aspect of the patella and resecting some of the inferior bone to decrease flexion impingement. This may be done successfully in mild cases of Baja deformity. In patients with a more moderate patella Baja deformity, techniques to lower the joint or transferring the tibial tubercle to a more superior position may be performed. Lowering the joint line by cutting more proximal tibia will require distal femoral augmentation with a revision knee system. Finally, in cases with a severe Baja deformity, a patelectomy may be performed. This is not without consequence, however, as a patelectomy will leave the patient with quadriceps weakness and extensor lag and instability. Also keep in mind that following a patelectomy, it is necessary to use a cruciate substituting component design and that a cruciate retaining design is contraindicated. That has been tested in the past. All right, now let's move on to revision total knee arthroplasty. First, let's talk about how a painful total knee replacement should be approached. When a patient presents with a painful total knee arthroplasty, it is vital to identify the cause of the pain prior to initiating any surgical intervention. Sources of pain following a total knee can be grouped into intrinsic and extrinsic classifications. Keeping these two categories in mind when formulating your differential for a painful total knee can prevent you from missing some common diagnoses. First, consider the possibilities of extrinsic causes of knee pain. The two most common would be referred pain from the hip and spine. Degenerative changes of the hip and spine are very common in this patient population and first should be excluded. If the patient has noticeable hyperesthesia, sensitivity to light touch, swelling and skin discoloration, then what would you be considering? Complex regional pain syndrome. 
intrinsic causes of pain following total knee arthroplasty can be worked up with physical exam, radiographs, and laboratory analyses. Aseptic loosening secondary to polyethylene wear debris can typically be easily visualized on plain radiographs. Obviously, before any surgical intervention is performed, infection needs to be ruled out. Infection typically presents with constant diffuse knee pain, possibly some swelling, and possibly systemic signs including fevers and chills. Infection occurs in 1-2% to of primary total knee arthroplasty. In the setting of osteolysis and pain, laboratory values should be analyzed including a white blood cell count, ESR, and CRP. Any elevation should prompt a joint aspiration. Remember that a white blood cell count greater than 1100 with greater than 64% neutrophils is indicative of infection. Other intrinsic causes of pain include metal ion hypersensitivity, commonly to nickel, instability, and malposition of the components. Far and away the most common cause for aseptic failure in total knee arthroplasty is patellofemoral maltracking. A helpful diagnostic technique is an intraarticular lidocaine challenge test. If the etiology of the patient's pain is not clear and other diagnoses have been excluded, an intraarticular injection of lidocaine that relieves approximately 90% of the pain will help elucidate if the pain is coming from an intrinsic source. Once the diagnosis has been established and it has been decided to proceed with a revision total knee arthroplasty, there are several goals to keep in mind. The procedure should be performed using prior incisions in avoiding skin bridges, developing thick skin flaps, and extracting the components while retaining as much bone as possible. You also want to restore any bony deficits with metal augmentation or bone graft and attempt to retain the native joint line as close as possible. Finally, it is crucial to implant a stable and well-balanced component. Many cases of revision total knee arthroplasty will require an extensile exposure. If a standard medial parapetellar approach is utilized, a quadriceps snip can be added with no deficit in postoperative outcome. Again, remove the implants while retaining as much bone as possible. Once the implants are out and as much cement as possible has been removed, you can begin the reconstruction. Most surgeons prefer to start the reconstruction on the tibial side. This offers you the best chance of reconstructing the native joint line. The native joint line should be approximately 1.5 to 2 centimeters above the fibular head. If the joint line is elevated more than 8 millimeters, it can cause patellofemoral tracking issues, mid-flexion instability, and a patella baja equivalent. If the patella component is loose, you should be suspicious for maltracking. If the patella is being resurfaced, ensure the bone thickness is at least greater than 12 millimeters to avoid fracture. The revision system utilized will be dictated by the bone loss and the soft tissue insufficiency. With any varus or valgus instability, a constrained, non-hinged prosthesis with a large central post and deep femoral box would be a good choice. If there is a significant amount of metaphyseal bone loss, a long stem prosthesis should be utilized. Metal augments or allograft bone can be used to fill in any large structural defects. Revision total knees do not do nearly as well as primary total knees. Patients need to be made aware of this well before surgery to manage postoperative expectations. Many patients will have residual pain and decreased range of motion. The risk of perioperative complications is also increased with revision surgery. The risk of infection goes from 1-2% to in primary knees to 6% with revision surgery. The risk of skin necrosis is also increased secondary to the prior incisions compromising blood flow. Remember that blood flow comes in from the medial side and therefore the most lateral incision should be utilized. If full thickness skin breakdown occurs, the patient may require a medial gastrocnemius rotational flap for coverage.
If the revision surgery is not successful, patients may require a knee arthrodesis or an above knee amputation. A knee arthrodesis can be performed using an intramedullary nail, external fixation device, or plate fixation. The knee should be fused at 5 to 8 degrees of valgus, 0 to 10 degrees of external rotation, and 0 to 15 degrees of flexion. Finally, let's conclude the talk with a section on complications in periprosthetic fractures. Periprosthetic fractures around total knee replacement can be a challenging problem. They can occur as distal femoral fractures, proximal tibia fractures, and patella fractures. Risk factors include poor bone stock and stress risers from prior hardware. Patients with neurologic disorders are also at an increased risk. It is debatable whether anterior femoral notching can predispose to a distal femur fracture. Distal femur fractures in the supracondylar region, proximal to the femoral component, can be treated with an anti-grade intramedullary nail. If the patient's femoral component has an open box design, it is also possible to use a retrograde intermedullary nail through the box. If a nail cannot be accommodated secondary to an implanted total hip or the fracture pattern, a fixed angle device, such as a locked lateral plate, can be used. If the fracture pattern proceeds distal to the anterior flange of the femoral component, a fixed angle device should be used. If the femoral component is loose, it may require revision to a long stem prosthesis that bypasses the fracture by at least two cortical diameters. Finally, in elderly patients with poor bone stock, a distal femoral replacement may be required. In periprosthetic fractures surrounding the tibial component, in which the component remains stable, if the fracture is non-displaced, it can be treated with casting. If, however, there is a significant amount of displacement, it will require open reduction internal fixation with a locked plate. Finally, in the setting of a loose tibial component, revision to a long stem prosthesis is indicated. Periprosthetic patella fractures that are stable with an intact extensor mechanism can be treated with a hinged knee brace locked in extension or a knee immobilizer. If the component is loose, treatment options can range from open reduction internal fixation to partial patellectomy to total patellectomy. One of the most common complications following total knee arthroplasty is postoperative stiffness. Poor preoperative range of motion is the most important factor for predicting whether or not the patient will develop postoperative stiffness. Stiffness is defined as a flexion contracture greater than 10 to 15 degrees or range of motion less than 90 degrees. Other etiologies include infection and malpositioning of the components must be ruled out in the setting of stiffness. If it is caught within the first 12 weeks postoperatively, the patient may benefit from a manipulation under anesthesia. If, however, it is greater than 12 weeks, the manipulation may not be as beneficial. Late stiffness can be addressed with arthroscopic lysis of adhesions. Extensor mechanism rupture can also be a challenging problem to deal with in the setting of a total knee arthroplasty. Partial quadricep tendon injuries with an intact extensor mechanism can be treated in a knee immobilizer. The complete disruption of the quadricep tendon can generally be fixed with suture repair if adequate tissues exist within the tendon. An acute complete disruption of the patella tendon with adequate bone stock can be treated with direct primary repair. However, if the disruption is chronic, the patient may require an allograft reconstruction of the entire extensor mechanism. Finally, the perineal nerve is the most commonly damaged neurovascular structure occurring in approximately 0.3 to 2% of all total knee arthroplasty cases. As mentioned previously, Preoperative valgus deformity and flexion contracture can predispose a patient to developing a perineal nerve palsy. Other risk factors include prolonged tourniquet time, epidural anesthesia, and aberrant retractor placement. 
Following recognition of the perineal nerve palsy, the first step is to remove any compressive wrap and to place in the inflection, thereby decreasing tension on the nerve. Approximately 50% of patients with a nerve palsy will improve with time. They should be treated with an ankle foot orthosis for foot drop while the nerve recovers. If they do not improve by three months, the patient may require nerve decompression and later possibly tendon transfers. Wound complications following a total knee arthroplasty can be a devastating problem to deal with. Risk factors include previous incisions with small skin bridges, diabetes, vascular disease, smoking, poor nutritional status, and postoperative infection. Full thickness skin loss will require treatment with a medial gastroc rotational flap. All right, that concludes our final lecture on the adult reconstruction section. To maximize your performance on these components of an exam, I recommend concentrating on the complication sections of both hip and knee with particular focus on periprosthetic hip fractures and periprosthetic joint infections, as well as the basic science of implant materials and balancing techniques in total knee arthroplasty. As always, please check back in the lecture series for any new additions and modifications to the lecture topics. Thanks again for listening.